0: Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That, a radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us this afternoon for What Do You Know About That? As always, I'm your host, Eric Gershnow, and joining me is, as always, my lovely co-host, Mary Angela. How are you, Mary Angela?
1: Hello, Eric. Hello. How are you?
0: I'm doing just dandy. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. Can't complain. (laughs) Excellent. February is coming to a close here. Yeah. What, we have still... More cold weather, though, ahead of us.
1: Well, I mean, six weeks as of the beginning of February. So really only two weeks. Two weeks of winter left.
0: So says the groundhog, though,
1: right? Right, it says right. the groundhog.
0: Although we've had a couple nice warm days in the yeah. few past few weeks, so... It's just a tease. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> oh, looking forward to that springtime. Mm-hmm. Can't come fast enough.
1: So, hey, Eric, why don't you tell us what's going on this day in science?
0: Well, I'm glad you asked. So... Interesting. It's the two-year anniversary of the passing of Katherine Johnson, also known as Katherine Goebel. So, for folks who are familiar with the book, which was turned into a movie, Hidden Figures, she was the mathematician that helped to steer the spaceship. So, Katherine Johnson, the legendary NASA scientist and a titan of mathematics, passed away on this day in 2020. Born in a small town in West Virginia, Johnson was integral to the success and development of countless NASA operations, including the famous 1962 orbital mission of astronaut John Glenn and the other missions that allowed the U.S. astronauts to land on the moon. To this day, NASA still tell the story of how astronauts, unsure of the computer's calculations, demanded that Johnson, the human computer, run them personally before they would suit up. Johnson's remembered for a lifetime of consistent genius and determination. So this day in science, two years ago, she actually lived to be a hundred and one years old. Can that's you believe awesome. that?
1: That's awesome. So she's wow. on a, she got a, a jar of smuckers. <laughs> that's what happens when you turn a hundred. Smuckers you, sends you a jar. You get your Really? On it. Yes. It's a how, whole thing.
0: How do they know when you turn I mean somebody's then? gotta tell them that I mean, are right? but
1: that's that that's the whole thing. Um Wilfred Scott on uh the Today Show, for years, used to give shout-outs to the people turning 100, and then Smuckers was always sponsored by Smuckers, and Smuckers would send those people a, a jar with their name on it. I know. Oh, I always wanted my grandma to be on a Smuckers jar, because we used to watch that together all the time, and she'd be like, I can't wait to be on a Smuckers jar if I live that long. And I was like, you will! And she did not. But oh. it's always a, you know, a goal. I intend to be on a Smuckers jar. Are
0: you gonna, you're working towards that one. Yep. Okay, well. Eat healthy and exercise. <laughs> I mean, anyhow, this day in science, so. Thanks. So what's going on in the neighborhood?
1: Well, um, a lot of things are going on in the neighborhood. Some interesting factoids that um, came across my radar in the last week. Um, since we were talking about scams in our last episode... As we know, one of the, it's not really a scam, but something that happens here often in the neighborhood is packages get stolen off your porch. Sure. Right? I mean, I don't know how many times I'm always, like, really worried about, you know, when I see the little delivery notice from, you know, whatever it is I'm getting delivered. And it's like, it's been delivered. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not home. And, you know, no one's home to bring it in. And, oh, is it going to get stolen? Uh, right. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. But uh, with the resurgence, or not the resurgence, but with the... Um, development of people a lot of people getting those ring cams you know what a ring cam is
0: well yeah it's the the little thing that sits on your front door right it's like in lieu or in replacement of having say like a little eye hole so you can see people right so you can actually like connect your phone to it and then you could
1: correct they're very popular and they're becoming really affordable now and so a lot of people have ring cams and they've been you know the ring cam has been capturing because it records people stealing packages Uh uh-huh so what I didn't know the ring cam does, and this is what came up on the neighborhood group, is that somebody said, hey, I figured out how to get people to stop stealing packages. Because for a long time, people would just post these ring cam videos of people stealing packages. But it, it doesn't do anything. You, you turn it into the police, and the police are like, okay, we'll keep our eyes open. But like that could be anybody. People usually mask their face. They usually wear a hoodie. I mean, it's so hard to tell. The police are like, I'm not going to work real hard to figure out who this is stealing this package. However... There is a feature on some of the newer ring cams now that actually makes an announcement when it senses movement walking up toward the house. Really? Yes. And it will say, you're being, it'll say, hello, you're being recorded.
0: Oh, nice.
1: It absolutely will. And that...
0: Would deter just about anybody from wanting to steal something off your front porch.
1: Correct. And so this woman on uh, the next door group posted her, a video of a package that she had delivered and this person walking right up and it's saying, hello, <laughs> you're being recorded. And the person took off, turned around and bolted. Wow. Yeah. So. Um, just a little tip, if you have a ring cam or you're thinking about getting one, definitely get one that has the you know auto-announcement feature and just set it for motion sensor to say, hello, you're being recorded and your packages won't get stolen.
0: Handy tip.
1: Yeah, I thought that was pretty great. Uh, the other thing that people are really talking about is the magnet school lottery. So anybody who has had a child in the school system in Philadelphia knows that there are a lot of magnet school options for kids. And I think that's great. It's something that, you know, where I grew up that didn't exist. There was like one or two magnet schools. And, you know, if you really wanted to go it was a whole thing, but here in Philadelphia, there are so many that, you know, when you hit eighth grade, they start telling you at the beginning, if you want to go to a good magnet school or, or go study something specific, you've got to start like early applying that year and you have to like get things together. If it's an art school, you've got to have a portfolio. You've got to start writing your essays. I mean, I honestly, it's like a college
0: application. Yeah, I mean, I felt like
1: when, when our kid was going through that process that like, wow, that's a, that's a lot (laughs) Um, for an eighth grader. And uh, you know, he worked really hard and he did apply to five schools and he ended up getting into three of his five choices and and got to choose where he wanted to go. Uh, He ended up going to FLC and that was great. well, They've done away with that system and now what it is, it's a lottery system. So you enter the lottery with your five choices and then you take a test that is a machine graded writing test. So no more essays, no more, you know, portfolios, Not personalized. no yeah. no more interviews, no more taking into consideration your grades and everything else. It is strictly this machine graded writing test which basically qualifies you and then you're entered into if you you know passed that test or got a a good enough score or whatever you are entered into this lottery and preference in the lottery is given to certain zip codes because they're trying to um, sort of balance and make sure that you know plenty of uh, black and brown people get in which is I think great so the
0: Is that was that the the, issue? Yes.
1: The thought is that it would make this more equitable. Right. And it would give opportunities for more people to get in. And I do agree with that. I do think that is a good idea. Um, However, what's happened, the flip of this is that now without all this other criteria. Right. It's it's making it harder for kids who have worked very hard in a specialization. So for example, our our kid who was into art, right? He had this whole portfolio he had been working on for what, like 3 years, mm-hmm. right? That he was working with a private art teacher to get this portfolio together to go in because he wanted to go to Kappa. That was his top choice. And they had the pretty stringent, you know, entrance like application or whatever. It's hard
0: to get into Kappa. It's very competitive because there's a lot of talented kids that they're you know getting a pool from so
1: correct but now it isn't
0: doesn't really matter
1: now now it's a lottery if you apply and you pass the test to get in right and you have the the you know minimum criteria the interest and in art the interest of this then it's a lottery mm-hmm. and you get in same thing with central remember how competitive it was to get into central um you know kids had to have certain attendance records and they had to have you know write it write an essay that you know and uh, i think in some cases they had to Um, have family that had gone to Central or something. I know that that's what helped um, Jared, I'm pretty sure, get in was because his grandfather had gone to Central. So, you know, there's that, except now it's a lottery. So now, you know, you pass the test and you get entered in the lottery and you may or may not get in. And we're getting a lot of feedback from parents in the community who are like, my child worked so hard for so long and didn't get into any of their mm. choices and now we are going to go to the neighborhood school and as we all know in a lot of cases the neighborhood school is underfunded and under supported and so they're going to get an education that's not really going to be on par with what they need to get into a good college or to get into their college of choice and so the other choice for the family now is a local school.
0: high school right
1: well no, that's that's what they would have to go to is to be the local high school as that is underfunded and unsupported. and so
0: well, and you've also had depending on what neighborhood you're in, um some of those schools have closed down, so a lot of schools have been consolidated,
1: correct. So you know, now you're traveling further to get to a school, but again, it's also about the fact that you know, being underfunded makes it a less I don't know what the words are I'm looking for, but it makes it. Again, it's, it's not going to help them get into higher education. The magnet school is what would have done that, right? But now they can't go to the magnet school. And what's even more complicated is that for years, if your child passed the test and the application process and got into Masterman or um, what's the other school? It's Masterman and one other one that has a junior high. I'm sorry. I can't remember the name of oh, it. Oh, yeah. But um, if you got into the junior high at Masterman, it doesn't the other guarantee school, you. Correct. It used to be it did. It used to be you got into the junior high, you were going straight into the high school. But now, with the lottery system, you still have to apply and submit your name through the lottery. So it really is a double-edged sword because I can see a lot of kids getting opportunities that they wouldn't have gotten previously, which I think is great. But I also see how it's swiftly cutting out the kids who have been working for a very long time to try to get in there and, and now don't have the opportunity to do that. So it's... It's not a perfect system. They've only done it one year. This was the first year they've done it. They're talking about, you know, continuing it next year. So that'll be the second year and they're going to revisit in five years. So when five years has passed, they'll revisit and see if they think more changes should be done, if they should go to some kind of hybrid of the two. Something along those lines, but um well, it's, some, it's got a lot of parents up in arms
0: well, I'm sure, especially I mean because the, their their generation of kids going through high school right now are the experiment right so we'll
1: after spending a year out of school and virtual learning, <laughs> this is what the school system
0: feels like another hurdle, huh
1: yeah, so uh, it's a it's a hot topic it's a hot topic in the community right now so What's going on on your radar, Eric? What's going on in the neighborhood that you found out
0: about? Well, I'll just briefly mention there was or there is a piece of legislation that's going through the Philadelphia City Council that could put a moratorium of six months uh, to hold off on any major demolition happening in our neighborhood. So it includes specifically Germantown, Mount Airy, uh, it excludes any properties that are below 150000 and any properties that are deemed hazardous to the neighborhood. Like but condemned? Yeah, condemned. exactly, right. But it's got some folks concerned, partly because I, I think uh, the person who's championing it, it's um, Cindy Bass, who's in city council. So she was involved apparently in a project to rehab the Y, mm-hmm. and that, that basically got... Um, It put on hold, and ultimately, I think it just nothing actually came through. So the the concern from I guess the developer side is not being able to to get contracts and get development done that would actually add value to the neighborhood. Uh, The concern from the city council, I think, is more tied to the neighborhood having the time, uh, you know, community members have the time to really process and digest. What's being proposed to understand the, the potential impact to the community? Sure. It's a situation right now where the city council first has to approve, or it goes to the city council first, they review it. Uh, the motion again was proposed by Cindy Bass, and then it would actually go to, I guess, the city uh, congressional leaders to actually vote on.
1: So the proposal is to hold off. It's a proposal. Saying for the next six months, nobody can demolish anything that isn't either condemned, dangerous, or under right. 100. So if you're
0: looking to do like a major uh, rehab project, it's taking a more precautionary approach. I think uh, certainly from a developer's perspective, it may potentially turn people off uh, from investing. Um, you know, well, right the if they were gonna
1: if they were gonna demolish it instead of try to rehab it. I mean, it sounds like this would encourage people to rehab versus tear it all down.
0: Right, and I think that that is the the, the big question and, and from a developer's perspective it's probably cheaper uh, in some cases maybe to demolish yeah. and start from scratch but I think from people in the neighborhood who want to preserve uh, you know the the historic element to the neighborhood and just the, and the look aesthetic. and feel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but eventually I I expect this neighborhood, I hate to say it, um is going to end up looking like Northern Liberties, right? I mean, you, oh, you no. see a lot of the new developments that are oh, coming no, out across the city. I it's- mean, I
1: love Northern Liberties. It's got its own vibe, it's got its own feel, but that's not <laughs> Germantown.
0: It's definitely not Germantown, and I I would hate to see that change. But at the same time, you, you still want healthy development to come in because there are a number of properties sure. that are probably that that could probably stand to use it, you know, or ha- ha- be be updated.
1: Yeah, and but there's some very cool historic properties that a decent rehab would make super nice, and you could charge kind of what people are wanting to charge for it. But I would also love to see a nice rehab come through, made affordable. You know, I mean, point in case is the old Germantown High School. There have been so many different ideas for what could happen there, so many proposals, and then the wheels just get stuck in the mud and it just spins round and round. Um, And that's just a gorgeous, gorgeous building that could provide.
0: Could you imagine that, that that high school could be turned into an apartment complex? It
1: absolutely could.
0: Yeah. a a huge playground
1: with with a community center in it with a right a theater in it with so many things could happen at the right person with where is a gazillionaire who just wants to give me money to do this (laughs) when you need it? well when you know
0: once when when i when i get my millions i figured maybe i'll invest i'm gonna i'm gonna buy the piece of property across the street from the high school thank you yes
1: the old germantown city hall
0: exactly yeah Yeah. I, i i love the uh the columns in the front. Oh, yeah,
1: that's a good building too. Anyway, anyhow, well, cool. Well, thanks, thanks for sharing that. That was great. Yeah. If you've got some thoughts on this, please, please, uh, drop them in our email at whatdoyouknowgtown at gmail or message us on Facebook or Instagram at all one word. What do you know about that? We would love to hear from you.
0: For real, for reals.
1: All right. What are we talking about today, Eric?
0: Well, I was thinking, you know, February is coming to a close, and February we recognize. Uh, African American history contributions which really is it's just American history right but we set aside this month to really highlight African American history and um something that's always been sort of an interesting topic for me and it actually came out of a conversation with um a fellow musician and that is the underground railroad mm. which is something that you know Philadelphia has a rich history specifically African American history. And, you know, the Underground Railroad was certainly an integral piece of that, you know, during the the late 1700s to all the way through the, the mid-19th uh, century. Philadelphia has a number of locations that were used as safe havens for runaway slaves, escape slaves. So The Underground Railroad, as I'm sure you know, as most listeners know, was not really a railroad or underground, but was a series of passageways, usually treacherous in many cases, that took you through a series of pit stops, safe havens, uh, on the way to either the three main locations were going to Canada, Mexico uh or the Caribbean and the the reason why those places were targeted was because there was no legislation or laws around slavery you know these these were non-slaveholding territories and uh you know even in the US as we know in uh non-slaveholding states at that time it was still not safe uh if you were not only a runaway slave but even you know a free man or free woman um, You know, there's a lot of uh, risk, especially along the Mason-Dixon line, uh, to those who uh, were free. So building up to this, as you know, were a lot of tensions between northern and southern states. And a lot of it is captured uh, in this, um, what's called the Fugitive Slave Law. It was a piece of legislation that was passed on the federal level. So this went through Congress, and this was... Essentially negotiated between what were called the Whigs at the time and Southern Democrats. So at that time, the Democratic Party represented really the Southern man and was connected to the slaveholding. And there's a lot of tension between those states, particularly because you had recently acquired all these Western territories from Mexico that extended all the way to the West Coast. So the question was. Are these states going to be slaveholding states or not? And part of that legislation included this fugitive slave law. So it was designed to diffuse the conflict between the northern and southern states and really just prolong the the start of the Civil War. Uh, it seemed like that was inevitable. And in this, but this was designed to try and tame a lot of that conflict. Uh, so it required federal judicial officials in all states to assist in helping return escaped slaves so it was really designed to help support southern slavery Uh, non-compliance would result in fines in some cases Uh, certainly aiding a slave was considered a crime and you know slaves at that time were people who didn't have any rights so you know you capture a slave it's not like they have the opportunity to seek a trial and testify on their behalf you know they're considered property and because of this, this um, the way the law was written, there was incentive. And not not only would you be punished if you if you aided and abetted an escaped slave, but you, uh, conversely, you'd be rewarded if you helped to return uh, fugitive slaves. So, this actually spurred what was called the reverse Underground Railroad. So you had folks who were essentially targeting not only fugitive slaves but free people uh, and then funneling them into the South in order to receive payment.
1: Like what happened in 12 Years a Slave, Exactly,
0: just like 12 Years a Slave. So the term that's used is called blackbirding, uh, and that's really when you coerce or kidnap someone and basically funnel them into indentured servitude, And uh, that was quite common. And certainly in the South, but areas even as far north as Philadelphia, New York City, you had small gangs that would actively orchestrate these types of kidnappings to funnel free people into the slave trade. Historically, Philadelphia was a a huge port for importing... um, enslaved peoples, and then funneling them throughout, you know, the states. And interestingly enough, though, it is also, as you know, you know, it's got one of the largest communities of affluent African Americans. And this is in more like in the South Philly area. So between 6th and 26th, and from South Street down, at that time was predominantly African American. So as you know as well, Philadelphia was founded by
1: Quakers. Quakers who did not believe in slavery. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So you had a, a, a huge concentration of abolitionists in the Philadelphia area. To go back really quick, though, just to touch on why it was called the Underground Railroad. You know, there was not a huge hierarchy. They had to operate in secrecy so you really just had small collections of abolitionists who had a system of communicating with each other it was actually a numbered system masked in secrecy and at that time railways were a form of mass transportation so using the term railroad there was uh some of the terminology was adopted from that to to use as part of that that code of communication so if, like for example Conductors were people who were guides who would help usher folks from one location to another. So you could speak sort of in a general context, even in a public space, and use these terms. And, you know, people wouldn't necessarily be suspicious of that because you think you were talking about just, you know, taking a train. So slaves were referred to cargo you actually had benefactors from the underground railroad those were referred to as people as stakeholders so that's part of the i guess the the guise to to help maintain the secrecy to ensure that they could move people safely from the south uh, into these non-slaveholding territories
1: so something um i'd like to mention was something that charlie mentioned this weekend about the Mason-Dixon line. So I didn't really understand that the bottom of Pennsylvania is the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah. The Mason-Dixon line runs along the bottom of the state, which basically means Philadelphia is the last stop in the north before you end up in the south because the Mason-Dixon line cuts right through us here.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting because I, you know, I'm a DC native, you're from Northern Virginia, mm-hmm. and though DC in 1850, when this, this law was passed, the, the Fugitive Slave Law, it abolished slave trading in Washington, D.C., but you still had people who had slaves in the D.C. territory. And, like, the, the, the blackbirding I was talking about was very prominent in, in Virginia, Maryland, and in the Delaware area. Yeah. So, yeah, we're not too far from the South,
1: yeah, it's. I I always thought it was further. <laughs> I was I was very. Um, You're thinking like surprised. deep south, right? No, I was, but I I knew it was Virginia, but I kind of thought you know the top of Virginia. I thought Maryland was above the Mason Dixon line. I yeah. did not realize that it. Yeah, it's it's Pennsylvania. So I found that interesting.
0: It, yeah, and it's in I think Philadelphia is is a, a unique location because you have this dichotomy where. Yes, there's a lot of, you know, folks even coming up from the South who were actively chasing down supposedly runaway slaves, but pretty much anyone they can get their hands on to make money selling, you know, just fueling the slave trade into the South. But you also have a huge concentration of abolitionists, free African-Americans, most notably uh, William Still. So William Still is an interesting character. He was... An abolitionist, he's a, um, or was a businessman, a coal merchant who lived in Philadelphia, and he actively uh, was involved in the Underground Railroad, so would shelter people at his home, and he actually kept records of folks. So anytime he had people come into his home, he would essentially interview them, capture a short bio of them. The reason for doing that was to help reunite families so if you can imagine people being ushered out you're not always going to have the opportunity to take everyone say at once it's certainly more risky for women and children to travel a lot of the treacherous Mm -hmm. you know path to get to the north and oftentimes women in particular because slave owners were more possessive of, Mm -hmm. of women so it was more challenging to get them out anyway long story short he would help to reunite families and oftentimes stay in touch with those folks after they've long left, again, to help connect people who know each other. Wow. Uh, ultimately, he took those documents, those bios, and then drafted them into a book. It's called The Underground Railroad Records. That's literally what it's called. It was published in 1872. And he actually has some strong connections to... This area in particular, the Johnson House. You're mm. familiar with the Johnson House, right? I am. Right?
1: Yeah, toward it and everything.
0: Yeah, so the Johnson House, and you can do some research on your own. They have their own websites just called johnsonhouse.org. It's one of the um, uh, historical sites in our neighborhood. It was, again, owned by Quakers. Uh, it had, I believe, three generations lived there up until 1908, but it was like built in 1768. Mm-hmm. And they uh, were a one of the major stops along the Underground Railroad. So it was a it's a fairly large property, and they would actually have people stay in the attic. So they had like a secret trap door that would lead up to the attic, and that's where people would stay as they moved. And they may uh, I think over a period of several decades, they've moved thousands of people and. Uh, Harriet Tubman has been known to have stayed there, uh, along with William Still as a notable abolitionist. So it's it's, quite a notable location. Another one that's in the Philadelphia area, too, is the uh, Belmont Mansion. Have you ever heard of the Belmont Mansion? I have. So the Belmont Mansion has an interesting history. It was built in 1742 by an attorney who worked for the Penn family and uh ended up passing down to a gentleman by the name of Richard Peters who was a speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly so the house ended up becoming host to a number of prominent historical figures in American history notably George Washington John Adams Thomas Jefferson and James Madison Richard Peters uh was also a member happened to be a member of the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery and quite naturally Opposed the Fugitive Slave Act, but this was back in 1793. So this actually predates uh, significantly the Civil War. It's been transformed into uh, an underground railroad museum. So it's actually located in West Fairmount Park. Uh, It's operated by the city of Philadelphia, but it's actually managed by the American Women's Heritage Society. And it's uh, just interesting to note they're partnered with GSC Productions they host theatrical performances of African-American heritage, and they're also partnered with the um, Lest We Forget Slavery Museum.
1: Yeah, which I, I heard about that. We They were on um, that Community Voices episode that I did about historic Germantown. So that's here in the area also.
0: Yeah. You know, it's quite interesting. The conversation I initially had with a friend of mine, he had told me he had been on an actual tour, and I know there are tours that you can take, There's a lot of locations that are right downtown near the Liberty Bell. Uh, There's the African American History Museum that's down there. Mm -hmm. But I want to say that there's old locations, historic locations within Philadelphia that still have some of these places where folks would be hidden, you know, Mm -hmm. that would hide away. Uh, I don't know if you can actually take a tour That'd be really kind of cool. I don't think so,
1: but inside the Johnson house, there is um, a map. It's, uh, at least it used to be the last time I was there, which was like four or five years ago, but it was this, it was this big map that sort of pinpointed the Underground Railroad and how it, where it came from. And I think the, I mean, like where, where all the routes were and there were several big ones coming from the Carolinas and Georgia and in that area that would go all the way up um, through Philadelphia end up uh, into Canada was yeah. was the end goal. Um, I actually have a little piece of history in my family so we lived in the John Hutchinson house which is in Chantilly, Virginia and um, it was built in the 1700s and one of the things we discovered while living there was um, a little trapdoor in the pantry. Or it was like a small closet or cupboard right. that, yes, led to um, a, a small, uh, basically, underground room that we think was a place to hide um, endangered slaves on the Underground Railroad yeah. at some point. Wow. Yeah. Because from what we know, um, the house was occupied mostly by, um, I think, Sarah Hutchinson? which was the wife or the daughter or somebody. Um, But anyway, the men were off fighting the war, leaving the women. and, And, yeah, so we think that's most likely what it was used for. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's really interesting.
1: But that's, I mean, that was a house that was built in the 1700s. So it kind of makes sense, you know, that that would be the case. And here in Philadelphia, we have a lot of houses that were built in the 1700s that still stand today. So it stands to reason and, you know, just seeing that map in the Johnson house of, you know, how, how so many roads led through Philadelphia. Um, I'm wondering if maybe it was because you could get on a ship, like you talked about, they would go to the Caribbean, mm-hmm. um, which is surprising to me because I thought that was the way and, um, slaved people made it into the United so, States.
0: yeah. Historically between 1662 and 1807, Britain was still shipping Africans uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. And, um, you know, the Caribbean was a British owned colony at the time, but enslaved peoples uh, had rebelled against slavery uh, right up until the emancipation, uh, which happened in 1834. So it it predates the Civil War. Slavery was, I believe, on its way out, actually. It wasn't really until the, the invention of the cotton gin so that you're combining, um, industrialization with free labor. And that's what really helped to boost the Southern economy. Mm -hmm. And that's what sort of kept slavery going.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's a, it's an interesting piece of history that definitely still lives around us, meaning like the, the, the evidence, um, of it is, is around us, meaning, you know, these places that people traveled and I'm glad that the Johnson house still exists as a, as a piece of that history to remind us that there were people in our community who opposed this and wanted to help people get to freedom.
0: Totally. And, you know, it's interesting to note there's, you know, the Johnson house in particular was a pit stop, but there was another or uh, several other locations just within our neighborhood mm-hmm. that were safe havens. Um, another individual in particular, Lucretia Motts in Sheltenham. So she was a Quaker as well, and she championed for women's rights. Uh, she was 1793, passed away in 1880. But her house was uh, located in Sheltenham and I believe there is a plaque with her name on it. From the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission, and it reads, Nearby stood Roadside, the home of the ardent quaker Lucretia C. Mott. Her most notable work was in connection with anti-slavery women's rights, temperance, and peace. Nice. So,
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Philly's known for being a community that rallies together to help people, and it started way back when.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And for anyone who's interested in, in, say, taking a walking tour uh, of Underground Railroad destinations uh, downtown, you can go to theconstitutional.com. It's got a breakdown of various locations. Like I said, there's a huge cluster of locations that are right downtown near the Liberty Bell. So uh, you can take a gander there, but then you don't have to walk too far within our neighborhood to uh, hit the Johnson House or the Belmont House, if you want, or I the Belmont Mansion, if you want to. Probably
1: throw a rock right now and hit it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> probably, it's right over there on Washington Street, one block away. <laughs> <laughs> You're
0: right. Well, if any of our listeners have anything to contribute to this topic, we, we'd love to hear. If you have any particular stories uh, of unique interest um either from places you visited or personal history that you know of we would love to hear from you
1: absolutely drop us an email at what do you know gtown at gmail.com or give us a dm on our facebook or instagram at what do you know about that
0: that's right and please stay tuned for our next segment who are the musicians in your neighborhood today we are joined by ms emily drinker so don't go anywhere You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. Hey,
1: everybody. We're back. Thanks for tuning in. It is time now for one of my favorite segments of the show, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood?
0: Who are the musicians in your neighborhood?
1: Great. And I'm so pleased today to be welcoming um, Emily Drinker. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. How's it going?
1: It's going good. Can't complain. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? How long you been here? What's going on?
2: <laughs> oh, I am from a suburb of Philly from Conshohocken originally, but I live in Roxborough. I actually grew up going to a church in Germantown, uh, so I've always been pretty local. I'm a songwriter and... Um, I love being part of the Philly music community. I've been part of it for the last, I guess, five or six years. Before that, I was traveling on a cruise ship with a band. And so that was super fun. And before that, I lived in New York for a little bit for college and a little bit after college as well. But I'm really a Philly person. And uh, yeah, I write kind of folk music, pop, um, rock. It's sort of all over the place. But I have a, a band, um, all my best friends from my cruise ship band are my band at home as well. Like we were able to do that together. And so we all live pretty close by and we do our thing.
0: Nice. That's really cool. How, how, I'm curious to know, how did the cruise ship band thing come about? Okay, so you're going to school and then all of a sudden, hey, I got this gig on a cruise ship, come and play. How did that evolve? Craigslist. <laughs> okay. There you go.
2: It was super random. I had no experience playing in a band before then. I had done acapella music in high school and college. And I knew I really wanted to perform and be in a band and I didn't know how to do it. And I was living in Brooklyn and just felt kind of daunted at the thought of figuring out how to, to gig in New York. And would just look on Craigslist every day, type in singer. And a lot of times like, Sewing machines came up. (laughs) Right. (laughs) People selling a sewing machine. But one time this ad was on there for looking for a female singer for a cruise ship in the Mediterranean. And the audition. Yeah, it was crazy. The audition was in Brooklyn at some dude's loft, which was I didn't tell my parents that I was doing this until I had the contract in hand. (laughs) I went to the dude's apartment and auditioned and kind of really hit it off with the other guys in the band and then they offered me the job and i flew to spain and got on the ship and we didn't know anything any music Well, before spain i had met up with them in north carolina where they were actually from and rehearsed for a few days but like not enough time to like get to know these people and also like learn music that you're gonna play every day for the next six months together so it was great it was really fun i was i was 23 i had I had traveled a little bit before then, like in college, but not to this extent. So it was really such a cool experience. And then I did that on and off for a couple of years, ditched those Craigslist guys, <laughs> um, <laughs> invited my friends from, from home, from Philly to do it with me. And
0: Oh, that's yeah, really cool. Did you guys get a chance great. to go inland?
2: Yes. Well, we, we were always available, like had free time to get off the ship every day. Um, so we were, I think we went to like 40 different countries. Wow. It was nuts. Yeah. We were so spoiled, but we had played on the ship every night for like three hours at the different clubs and, uh, had a great time.
1: Wow. That's a, that's a great gig if you can get it. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. know. So, awesome.
0: so that's going to be my next gig. Okay. <laughs> Six months? I, no, you, you'll just come with. You'll just hang out because there's swing pools and everything on those boats.
1: Sure. Just remember how much you don't like people. Uh, oh, <laughs> you're on, on a boat with lots of people and there's nowhere to go. Oh. <laughs>
0: no,
2: you're trapped.
0: Oh, no. That is a little scary, the thought of it. But anyway. And you so can't, you...
2: like, make a cup of tea. You can't really do things that you could do at home. You can't have pets. You know, you really don't have, like, right. a normal life. It's very bizarre.
3: Yeah.
2: And, but... For me at that age, playing music and getting paid to do it and travel, it was like ideal. But now I don't know if I could. I'm not sure. I kind of want to go back, but I'm also sort of past that. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I bet it was really inspirational. I mean, you know, traveling to that many countries, you're being exposed to all different kinds of things. And, you know, as as an artist of any kind, I could see where that would be really influential and and inspirational. So, totally for sure.
0: So then you come back to Philly at that point, right? And you start making music. Uh, when did you actually f- start recording? So I believe the your first EP, right? This is the EP that came out, Run the Race, right? Mm-hmm. That was 2017? Yes. Okay. So
2: I got back in 2016, in November, like two days before the election, before Trump was elected. And in many ways, we were like, great. Why did we come back? (laughs) Uh, And we had just been all over. Uh, we were in Europe, we were traveling in places and seeing newspapers. Like I remember being, we went to Israel and I remember looking at a newspaper there that had Trump and Hillary on the cover and couldn't read the headline, but just kind of realizing like, wow, we're about to go home to this horrible news cycle that we've sort of been, um, immune from like we have we've been living in our own world on the ship and all this stuff is going on with the campaign and just yeah intensity and then came back literally two days later voted and then started to record i guess it took me about a year i think that album that came out like november 2017 so i was sort of chilling i found an apartment um in the winter time, did my thing. I was like kind of aimless, got a job at a restaurant, um, really wanted to keep playing, but kind of needed a break too after all of the time at sea. Right. And uh, yeah, finally kind of got a few songs together and recorded and I went to this awesome studio that um, a friend of mine, Matt Muir, works out of sometimes. He's an amazing, amazing engineer. So, yeah, we recorded four tunes and, um, yeah, kind of finally got it together. And then I had a nice EP release show and felt really kind of invigorated by that and realized, okay, no more cruising. Maybe I should just try to, like, do some more, you know, original stuff. Right. And pretty much since then I've been working as a musician in Philly, and it's been great.
0: Cool. So the EP, was that with the same group of guys that – was on the cruise ship with you or
2: it actually wasn't now that I'm thinking about it. I had already had before the cruise or in between cruises, I had a different band. And so I recorded it with them because they had sort of, we worked out some versions of the songs before I went for my last cruise contract. So it was a few different guys than the people I've been working with more now, which is really the cruise band. And yeah, it was just different bass player and a different drummer, but my guitar player, Ethan, uh he's on all the new stuff as well. So, yeah. Very cool. And I also live with him. <laughs> <laughs> and we work together like full-time playing duo gigs and then we also live with my boyfriend Josh. So, we have a house of musicians here and and Josh is in my band as well, so.
0: And he's the drummer, correct? He's the drummer. Yeah. Ah, okay. Thanks. There you go.
1: Tell us a little bit about um, sort of, uh, you know, I hate to ask influences, but really, you know, what what would you say some of your influences are? Where do you, you know, I, you mentioned that you do a little folk, a little pop, you know, all of that, but but talk a little bit about how your, your style and, and where you draw from.
2: Sure. I love Joni Mitchell. She's She's my favorite songwriter, I would say, and just... Her melodies and just everything like I'm not someone who is super great in an instrument and I kind of just fumble around on the guitar or the ukulele and kind of go with what sounds cool and interesting and and weird and not saying that's what she did, but she just really inspired that in me. Just just going with what sounds cool and as opposed to like I'm not very into theory or I just don't quite understand it all the time. Um, but yeah, I love Beatles, definitely my favorite band ever. Um, no surprise there. But Simon and Garfunkel, uh, Bonnie Raitt, Carole King, really like that era, um, I love.
1: Love it. Those are all great. <laughs> yeah.
0: So you've been, since the EP, um, I'm just going back to your discography here. You, it looks like you've just released a number of singles. Um, over the past couple years. Um, and it's probably, a lot, I would think, a lot easier to just do that than, I mean, the time investment alone and in, in cutting an EP. It's, it's, it's a lot. But um, uh, tell us a little bit about the single that you want to have a, our listeners take a listen to today.
2: Sure. Yeah, I, I have been just releasing singles for a while now. Preparing to release an album... But at this point, I went into the studio before COVID with my band and we recorded seven songs in one day. We just knocked them out, which was really fun, but a long day. Mm-hmm. And then since then, and I think that was in 2019, it's it took me two years to finish it and kind of slowly go back in. And even though we had the basic tracks for all seven songs for this album... Um, it took forever it felt like it took forever to actually finish them but it's finally done but i've released now 5 out of 7 of the songs from the album <laughs> nice. as singles so i'm in this weird moment where i'm not sure now i feel like i'm neglecting the last two songs and they deserve their moment as you know singles as well but then the entire thing has been out so i'm i'm deciding still if i i want to release those two or just drop the album finally and move on cuz at this point i already have so many other projects in mind that I want to get to work on. So, but nowadays people just don't always have the attention span for albums. So I guess that's why I'm doing it that way. But the song that I, that you're going to hear, I did put it out last year. It's called guilty. It's kind of, it's fun and dancey. I wrote it on the ukulele years ago and then super fun to have the band throw all this percussion on it um sort of a paul simon vibe that you picked up on
3: mm-hmm. when we talked
2: about it earlier uh yeah this was written a while ago um it's called guilty it's fun it's dancey. i hope your listeners like it
0: all yeah, right everyone so uh, yeah emily drinker guilty
3: honest with you and now
1: was fun. I like it. It did make me dance in my chair. Yay. <laughs> so, where can we I mean, I know right now asking a musician where they're gigging out and where we can see you live is a hard question, but you know, are there some places where you frequent or we can catch you sometime? Maybe when the world stops burning. <laughs> when it gets warmer. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> when people are okay to stand yes. closer to each other.
2: Uh, well, I I do perform every week at a restaurant in Ambler, uh, in the suburb of Ambler, and it's called From the Boot, and that's sort of just a fun restaurant gig that I do with with Ethan Kane on guitar every Thursday night. But I do have some cool stuff coming up. I uh, I'm going to be part of this David Bowie tribute band.
1: Okay, when's Blue. that?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's going to be awesome. It's April 30th at Union Transfer.
0: I have to ask, is EJ Simpson a part of that?
2: No, I don't think so. I know EJ. I've met, I think I've met EJ at Dawson Street Pub.
0: Just curious, because I know he's done like a David Bowie kind of thing. Anyhow, please continue.
2: Well, it's supposed to be part of, you know how Philly does, Philly Loves Bowie Week? Mm -hmm. Yes. That whole week-long thing. And so I, they had to push it back for COVID, but this was supposed to be like the finale show and... It's at Union Transfer, which is a place that I've always wanted to perform at. Yeah. So super psyched. A couple other singers are involved, and then they have, like, a house band holding it down all night. So I think that's been moved to April 30th at Union Transfer, and it's called A Night of Stardust. I'm getting, like, some good one, good songs. Like, I'm doing – I won't give it all away, but I get to do Life on Mars.
1: Oh, yay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, I'm doing <laughs> changes.
0: Ooh, nice. I'm
2: doing a couple of, like, big hits, so
1: I'm We might have to see if we can grab crazy. some tickets to that. Yeah, you should. Other than that, preparing
2: to release this album if I decide when and how to do it, ever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to- always lots of other fun shows coming up. Um, just... I try to keep everything updated on my website, which is emilydrinker.com. But yeah, right now it's still kind of touch and go, just taking things and hoping that they won't get canceled. And sure. Yeah. Just uh, doing what I can.
1: The spring is coming. There'll be outdoor concerts yeah. again. That is always yeah. the best. Yeah, exactly. You know. But when and you then can something... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> thing
2: I do in the, uh, once it's nicer out, speaking of when it, when the weather changes, My roommates, Josh and Ethan and myself, we have this huge backyard in Roxborough. We started putting on backyard concerts last summer and and in the fall as well. And it was so awesome. And it was a great community event. So many people turned out and um, had a bunch of bands play, basically had a festival in the backyard. So hopefully we can do one of those maybe like May, April. I don't know if that will be cutting it. Too close with the cold. April might yeah. be early.
0: No, but I, th- I think the, that. the Everyone backyard. Everyone is invited. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> the backyard house party has become a fave as of late. Yes.
1: Yeah. No, there are several musicians I mean, we it's, know. It's who, a good way, to, I think, that.
0: to 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 manage things. Yep.
1: Yeah. It's great to get the music out in the community too. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah
2: and also I want to mention that I um I. Like last year and the year before, during all of this COVID time, I have been doing a live stream series with a friend of mine who's just like a great supporter of local artists. And we've been able to to really support local artists and pay them for coming on our show. We haven't been doing the live stream anymore, but we're having a contest. And so if any listeners want to send in a song, we are doing it till the end of the month. So the submissions have to be in by February 28th but we just need a video of you singing an original song if you want to get in on it. And, uh it's a $200
0: prize. Ooh, money. Yeah. Nice. So where would contestants go to submit that information?
2: They, if they go to my Facebook page, which is Emily Drinker to my music page, they will find a post about it. I'll be posting more and more about it as the month goes on and they can find A link to a google drive folder where they can upload their video and hopefully we'll have a nice little celebratory concert once we pick the winner and there's a runner-up as well and we'll have a little show to celebrate we did that last year and it was really fun and it just was able to connect with so many artists that i didn't even know
1: oh that's really cool yeah that's very cool
0: trying to
2: connect with people and like hang out and get to know other artists tell me
0: about that's why we're doing this so (laughs) um hopefully there's some uh you know young budding artists out there who are looking to build a network who are listening yeah
3: yeah yeah
0: so excellent well hey thank you so much emily for coming on and you know taking the time to chat with us and share your music
2: absolutely thank you so much i appreciate it so much that you guys are are spotlighting local musicians on your show it's really cool
0: Trying to spread the gospel.
1: Yes. And hopefully, you know, when things calm down, we'll be able to get people in here to, you know, perform live. Sometimes we'll we'll, we'll invite people back. So That would be awesome. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you again. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you. You too. Well, that's our show for
0: today. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of What Do You Know About That? Please tune in two weeks from now. We'll be back from 4 to 5 p.m. here on WGGT-LP, 92.9 FM G-Town Radio.